How are you at peeling potatoes? I guess what I'm saying is, does it draw a crowd? I remember as a kid watching my grandmother peel a bag of potatoes with a paring knife. And she would peel that potato with one long continuous strip. Man, was it impressive. Man, was it mesmerizing. You couldn't take my eyes off her. But it wasn't life-changing. This, though, was not the case for Nicholas Herman, born in 16th century France. People were said to have traveled from all over France just to sit and watch him peel potatoes in the hermitage kitchen. Now, you're probably wondering, what was his technique? People claimed that after spending time watching him, would leave claiming they've experienced the presence of God. What's amazing is Nicholas would claim the same thing. For him, peeling potatoes was just as sacred as taking the Eucharist at the altar in the cathedral. You see, Nicholas was born to a peasant home in Lorraine, France in the year 1614. And he grew up in difficult times, which eventually led him to join the army because he was hoping for the free meals and a small stipend that allowed him to survive. And it was during this time that he had an experience that would change his life forever. He tells the story of seeing a barren leafless tree in the dead of winter, standing in a field. It must have been the perfect combination of his openness for something more and a dissatisfaction for the way things wear that led to this profound moment. He surely has seen thousands of trees before. Sometimes it's in that kind of desperation that the most ordinary of things become conduits by which God can speak. Over 40 years later, he would write of that moment that it spoke to him of God's grace and providence. Nicholas Herman saw that tree, and in it he saw himself. Feeling barren and dead, he saw hope, he saw promise that in a short time the leaves would be renewed, buds would appear, then flowers, then fruit. Nicholas was inspired to remain faithful and awake to the process of God's timing in the seasons of his own life. It was an epiphany. After being wounded during his time in the army that would leave him physically challenged for the rest of his life, he left the military service and searched for other work. Struggling through several jobs, he eventually decided to enter a monastery in Paris as a hermit, following in the footsteps of his uncle in 1640. And there he took on the name Lawrence of the Resurrection, or Brother Lawrence as he would be known. His limited abilities had Brother Lawrence assigned to the kitchen at the monastery, where he spent his days cooking and cleaning in service to his superiors. And it was there, in that kitchen, that this humble, strange man shared his understanding of spirituality and specifically what he'd come to discover about the presence of God. And people would travel from all over France to seek his wisdom, to have him pray for them, or just sit and offer advice. And many just to watch him peel potatoes. What is even more incredible, that, that a man believing that he can experience the divine peeling a potato is that one may experience the divine by sitting with him while he does it. Now, word got out of his unique ideas and wisdom that officials eventually from the Catholic Church were sent to interview him. Reluctantly, he granted four conversations over a short time. Those conversations and several letters he wrote were compiled after his death into the now-famous book, Practicing the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence had come to discover God in the everyday activities of his difficult life, and he considered that awareness 
a sort of communion. He believed that if he saw everything as sacred work, which means everything is an avenue to experience the divine. I love this story of Brother Lawrence. It's a story about many things, including for me, the accessibility of God's presence. The story reminds me that a vibrant spiritual life isn't dependent on your ability to memorize scripture or pray for hours at a time, your education or your intellect. Instead, it's in your willingness to wake up to God's presence and beauty all around. There's an interesting encounter that Jesus has with his disciples that John writes about in his biography of Jesus' life. This encounter takes place before Jesus is crucified, and in John chapter 14, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the difficult days ahead. This is going to be a huge change. They've enjoyed his physical presence over a couple of years. They have been able to see him physically, hear him audibly speak, witness his challenge to the powers of oppression, and inspire those who are troubled, bring healing and hope, and feeding the multitudes. It was hard to miss. But what will life be like after Jesus no longer is among them physically, leading the way? Will this whole movement crumble? This is the question that many scholars have asked as they read about this person, Jesus. How is it that his movement that starts, this movement that he starts, that is ushering in this new social order of God's benevolence and peace and healing, how is it that it continues after his violent death? Why doesn't it just crumble. In fact, not only does it continue, it thrives. Theoretically, it shouldn't have. The answer to that question, for me at least, is in this dialogue in John chapter 14 that's recorded. Jesus says this to his disciples as he's preparing them for his physical absence. He says, don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm on my way to get a room ready for you. And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so that you can live where I live. And you already know the road I'm taking. But Thomas interrupted and said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? And Jesus said, I am the road. I am the way. I am the truth. I am also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. If you really knew me, you would know me. From now on, you do know me. As you've known the Father, you've seen him. Philip interrupted and said, Master, show us the Father. Just show us the Father and we will be content. Jesus responded, You've been with me all this time, Philip, and you still don't understand. To see me is to see the Father. So how can you ask, where is the Father? Don't you believe that I am in God and God is in me? The words that I speak to you aren't mere words. I don't just make them up on my own. The Father who resides in me crafts each word into a divine act. Believe me, I am in my Father and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see, these works. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. You can count on it. From now on, whatever you request along the lines of who I am and what I'm doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who he is. I mean it. Whatever you request in this way, I'll do. 
If you love me, show it by continuing to do what I've told you. I will ask the Father, and he will provide you another friend, so that you will always have someone with you. This friend is the spirit of truth. This godless world can't um, take him in because they don't have eyes to see him. They don't know what to look for. But you do. You know him already because he's been staying with you and will even be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming back in just a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you're going to see me again because I'm alive and you're about to come alive. At that moment, you will know absolutely that I am in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. The person who knows my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me. The person who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and make myself plain to him. This interesting dialogue happens because Jesus is telling them that he's leaving soon and that they will be able to follow him when the time is right. It is Thomas who asks, how will they know where he's going? And Jesus says, you already know, Thomas. You all already know. He tells them that he is the way. He's always been the way. He's always been the way to the Heavenly Father, to God. Philip then speaks up and says, just show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus says, but Philip, you've already seen God. Imagine the puzzled looks on their faces. What? (laughs) Jesus is saying that the living presence of God is present among them already. I can see how they're confused. I'm confused reading it. It takes a few passes to distill the simplicity of what he's saying. Jesus is the way to the intimacy they desire with God. And that way is experienced when they continue to do what he's taught them. The way is forgiveness, nonviolence, humility, not holding tight to possessions, choosing not to judge. These are the pillars of Jesus' teaching, or as he calls them, the way. And Jesus knows that his physical absence from their lives will be a shocker after years of being able to see and touch him. The mere comfort of his physical presence made the impossible seem possible. But in a little while, when Jesus will be gone, they may feel orphaned. They may feel abandoned. But they're not. They're not abandoned. They're not orphaned. Jesus says that the presence of God, that same presence that they've experienced in him, will return and will be available, accessible. That same presence that fed the hungry, that challenged the powerful, that set free those trapped, that brought healing and hope to the unwell and those living in despair, that same presence will be among them and in them. He promises a friend. The word can be translated as advocate or comforting presence. Jesus says the Holy Spirit of God will be what will guide them moving forward. A spiritual life is about waking up to that presence that we all have access to. It's within reach for all of us. All that's required for us to experience it is waking up to its existence. And a little life, and a life of faith is simply living in response to what we discover when we encounter that presence. It desires to guide us, to comfort us. And what is amazing is that it can be experienced here on a Sunday morning through a worship song, through a community of big table, through scripture, through watching the snowfall or peeling potatoes. 
Over the next few weeks, me and Jan are going to unpack some of the ways that we can practice this presence of God in our lives. And I say practice because the life of faith isn't a passive one. It isn't about accepting certain information as being true and then thinking one has arrived. No, the spiritual life is a way of living, a way of living out the teachings of Jesus. And we discover that as we do, we find our lives coming spiritually alive along the way. In the book, How God Becomes Real, an anthropologist examined the lives of those engaged in religious practice. And here's one of the big things they discovered, that those with the most vibrant experience of spirituality didn't practice their faith because they merely believed in something, but instead that they seemed to trust in something because they practiced their faith through a variety of expressions. And in that practice, the presence of the divine was experienced and felt. That people don't just pray because they believe. They believe because they pray. That people don't just worship because they believe. They believe because they worship. The life of faith isn't passive at all. It's about engaging the divine. Or as a secular anthropologist discovered, the life of faith is about believing that the divine is accessible here and now and discovering practices that engage in that loving presence. Becoming more in touch with our spirituality doesn't mean disconnecting or distancing ourselves from our humanity. In fact, it's the opposite. The incarnation, or the story of God loving his creation so much that he came into it, into our humanity, into our world, into the universe, not for duty or obligation, but as John writes at the beginning of his gospel, God chose to come into the world because of love, because he loved it. And when we wake up to that, we discover that it is the way into God's world that is here and now all around us. Let me close with Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor's observation of this. She says that people encounter God under shady oak trees, on riverbanks, on the tops of mountains, and in long stretches of barren wilderness. God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes, and perfect strangers. It seems that when people want to know more about God, Jesus tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field, to the birds of the air, to women needing bread and workers lining up for their pay. Whoever wrote this stuff believed that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to Scripture. What is true is what happens, even if what happens is not always right. People can learn as much about the ways of God from business deals gone bad or sparrows falling to the ground, as they can from reciting the books of the Bible in order. They can learn as much from falling in love or from a wildflower as they can from knowing the Ten Commandments by heart. Well, let's see if that's true, she writes. Perhaps the presence of God is so rich, so abundant, that maybe if we could just be present enough, open enough, hungry enough, awake enough, even the size of a mustard seed, Jesus would tell us, that one may even experience God, perhaps peeling vegetables for lunch. <laughs>